I'm hard on myself. I think a lot of us are. But it definitely prevents us from relaxing and taking things as they come. I have a lot to do and a limited time frame in which to get it done. This, I suppose, is the conscience. For those of us who are conscientious, we are equipped thereby with both a blessing and a curse. As a personality trait, I understand conscientiousness to be a predictor of lifetime success. Unfortunately, success does not find you. You have to find it. And the conscience will criticize you and rebuke you until you do. It's rather like a father figure that stands always over your shoulder in judgment. It sees you when you're sleeping. It knows when you're awake. And it knows if you've been bad or good. It wants what's best for you, but it never gives you a break. It's no wonder that people since ancient times have pondered the will of the gods. Is there some sacrifice that I can make that will appease this conscience? The curse is that the conscience won't, won't let you off the hook, will not let you shirk your responsibilities or accept your lame excuses. The blessing is that the conscience must see potential in you, must know that you're capable of great things. Like a good father, it just wants to see you reach that potential. As the conscious mind of a certain human being, I am in some ways its conscience, and in some ways it is mine. I have argued that consciousness has a function. In the third episode, I laid out an argument against the idea that human consciousness is epiphenomenal. Epiphenomenalism is the position which states that qualia can emerge from processes in the brain, but consciousness does not have any causality upon the physical world. My argument, which I laid out in that episode, convinces me that consciousness must serve a function, that it must exhibit causality in the world. In his book, The Quest for Consciousness, Christoph Koch defines what he calls zombie agents as rapid, effortless sensory motor systems that carry out behaviors in the absence of consciousness. Koch writes, quote, Given the many senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin, that flood the brain with information about the environment, and given the diverse effectors controlled by the brain, eyes, head, arms and fingers, legs and feet, the trunk, Breeding zombie agents for all possible input-output combinations is probably inefficient. Too many would be required, as well as something that coordinates their actions, in particular when they pursue conflicting aims. Such a nervous system would in all likelihood be bigger and less flexible than a brain that follows a hybrid strategy of combining zombie agents with a more flexible, conscious module. I am not claiming that such an uber-zombie could not exist or could not be built by artificial means. I don't know about that. What I am claiming is that natural selection favored brains that make use of a dual strategy." Unquote. How might such a dual strategy work? The usual assumption, if consciousness serves a function, is that we are endowed with the capacity for willful action. The conscious mind is the thing which drives voluntary behavior. We are aware that unconscious processes, corresponding to Christoph Koch's zombie agents, are plentiful. We obviously do not will the movement of each individual muscle in the forearm in order to bring about specific movements of the fingers. We will the movement of the fingers. In fact, we really aren't even aware of which muscles are moving, let alone how those movements are coordinated. The same is true for movements of the tongue and throat necessary for verbal communication. Furthermore, the syntactical coordination of the things we say seem to arrange themselves, underwriting our language production at an unconscious level. So zombie agents can be thought of as one half of the dual strategy. What is the other half, the conscious half? As I said, the usual assumption is that the conscious mind controls voluntary action. Suppose you want to say something, a sentence for example. The dual strategy is composed of an unconscious part which moves the throat and the tongue and puts together the syntax of the sentence 
and a conscious part, which understands the meaning and wills its expression forward. These two collaborators accomplish the task at hand. It's worth pointing out that, in this example, the unconscious part is a lot more than half of the duality. In Koch's model, it would require the operation of a number of coordinated zombies, and there would probably be a hierarchy of zombies needed to get something as complicated and meaningful as speech to occur. In this episode, I am going to pursue a hypothesis that the conscious mind serves a function in behavior, but not by means that are usually assumed. It is not by means of voluntary action. I am going to suggest, for the sake of this discussion, that the conscious mind operates as a qualitative evaluator. In order to understand what I have in mind, consider an orchestra and its conductor. This is a useful analogy for a number of reasons. First, it is a dual strategy like Koch proposed. Second, the orchestra is composed of a large number of individual musicians. These musicians will be our zombies. They read the music in front of them and carry out the instructions on the page. The conductor directs and evaluates. The conductor could be forgiven for having the sense that he or she is producing the symphony, that it is him or her whose will is bringing music into the world. In a way, this is even true. But by analogy to the dual strategy of the human brain, the conductor might not have the capacity to play any of the instruments in the orchestra. He or she evaluates and corrects. This can only be accomplished if the musicians are paying attention to the communicated desires of the conductor. What if we, the conscious minds of human organisms, are evaluating and correcting too? As long as the symphony is going in the right direction, as long as the musical piece sounds right, we are like pleased observers. When something doesn't feel right, isn't quite going as we would like it to, that feeling plays a direct or indirect causal role in making corrections. Evidence for this kind of dual strategy comes from Benjamin LeBay. In his book Mind Time, LeBay presents experiments that show the temporal limitations of the will in controlling behavior. He writes, quote, The view stated in the previous section, timing of brain processes and conscious will, of how free will may operate does create a problem. How can we explain our feeling or experience that we initiated an act? If the cerebral process that initiates a freely voluntary act is an unconscious one, the feeling of consciously initiating the process becomes paradoxical. We know that we do become aware of the urge or wish to act before the actual motor act. That could give rise to the feeling that we had consciously initiated the process. However, the feeling of having initiated the voluntary cannot be valid. We are not aware that the process is actually initiated unconsciously. On the other hand, it is possible the conscious will, when it appears, acts as a trigger to enable the unconsciously prepared initiative to proceed further to production of the act. In such a case, the conscious feeling of initiating or producing the voluntary act would reflect reality. It would then not be an illusion. What we are sure of is the ability of conscious will to block or veto the volitional process and prevent the appearance of any motor act. In other words, conscious free will could control the outcome of an unconsciously initiated process." LeBay's research shows that brain signatures of initiating a voluntary action precede the subjective sense the subject has of initiating that action, and not just by a little bit. How does that result interact with our orchestra analogy? The musician who is about to play his or her part in the symphony sees this coming up on the page before the conductor is aware of it. Suppose a movement of the conductor's baton could veto the musician such that he or she does not, after all, play the written part. This might be one way the conductor could be directly involved in the piece of music. Suppose that a nod from the conductor, on the other hand, could give the go-ahead for the musician. The analogy is imperfect, but I think it is still useful. 
Each zombie musician in our macabre little orchestra is prepared to carry out its function, but it does so with the understood assent of the conductor, for the pleasure of the conductor. When I have a beer in my hand, I do not really volunteer every drink that I take. On occasion, I just thoughtlessly lift the bottle to my lips and take a drink. I think this is how an awful lot of regular daily routine activities take place. We do not veto the action. We go with the flow. When we steer a car, when we speak the next word in a sentence, when we turn the page of a book, we are just going through the logical sequence. That is, unless something unexpected or unusual occurs that would cause us to hesitate, to veto. The reason this works so smoothly, I think, is because we have lived with ourselves for so long. We have learned our ways and habits. They run along well-worn paths. I suggested that the conscious mind acts as a qualitative evaluator. This means that the conscious mind does not have direct causal power on motor output. Instead, the conscious mind likes or prefers one particular direction or another in the present moment, and the zombie agents are influenced by that. I cannot even speculate on how this could operate in the physical world. I am making a lateral move with regard to the causal power of consciousness. Whether consciousness functions by direct willful action or by indirect evaluation, the mystery of how this occurs remains unsolved. I can now stretch the analogy further by the introduction of the composer, the author of the musical piece, which appears on the page. Koch writes, quote, The purpose or purposes for which consciousness originally arose in the course of evolution might be complemented or even supplanted by other functions in the meantime. There is no question that consciousness is important for language, for artistic, mathematical, and scientific reasoning, and for communicating information about ourselves to others. Furthermore, once information is consciously accessible, it can be used to veto or suppress zombie behaviors, actions, or memories inappropriate to the situation at hand. However, as the birth of conscious creatures probably predated the arrival of modern humans by millions of years, these higher aspects of consciousness, limited to hominids, couldn't have been the decisive factor favoring the evolution of conscious phenotypes over zombies. All animals with thousands or more visual, tactile, auditory and olfactory receptors are faced by the same onslaught of sensory information and would benefit from an executive summary that enables them to plan what to do next." Unquote. Thus, the composer in our analogy is the conscious planner. The broader plan for future action in terms of rational goals would seem to be of a conscious nature. After all, I have argued that no locus in the brain is aware of our goals and plans for the future. Our behavioral and cognitive capabilities are housed in widespread networks across the cortex and even in subcortical structures. The united conscious mind, in my opinion, is a global thing. Across the system from which consciousness emerges, there are hierarchies of meaning and value that cannot be appreciated from the vantage point of individual cortical loci. This is the reason that the temporally integrated causality landscape is structured as a system which has a point of view on the subsystems occurring inside of it. So we see, at least in theory, that the conscious mind is both composer and conductor. But in accordance with the evidence, the conscious mind might not be the musician. The musicians, as we have said, are all zombies. Further, I suspect that the planning aspect of consciousness might be reducible to the qualitative evaluator. If our very thoughts are simply arising into mind, we like some lines of reasoning and dislike others. We have preferences, biases, and reasons which we put together to make a good plan to us. The formation of these plans could be accomplished by evaluating our thoughts and either assenting or vetoing what comes up. 
Daniel Wegner has a chapter on hypnosis in his book, The Illusion of Conscious Will. Hypnosis is a means of social influence using a technique of induction, and it has been shown over the years to be quite effective, at least in some people. Wegner writes, quote, Hypnosis provides some people with an unusual ability to reduce their experience of pain. For example, in a study of pain induced in the laboratory, ischemic pain produced by a tourniquet reducing blood flow to the forearm, and cold presser pain produced by immersion of the hand in ice water, hypnosis was found to be more effective in reducing reported pain than morphine, diazepam, aspirin, acupuncture, or placebos. Reviews of a large number of studies on hypnotic pain control in laboratory and clinical settings indicate that this is indeed a remarkably useful technique. Unquote. This to me is one of the more interesting hypnotic phenomena because not feeling pain is hard to fake and in my experience impossible to command oneself to do. I have seen a hypnotist get a subject to sit pleasantly in a tub of iced water and report that the water is nice and warm. We know that the extremities of the body are reported by means of their temperature and pain receptors to the brain. The hypnotist could not be talking to a brain network somewhere in the cingulate cortex, for example. No single area of the brain can understand language, much less be convinced by it. The hypnotic effect, it seems to me, must be achieved by top-down, higher cognitive functions, conscious functions. I made the suggestion by analogy to an orchestra that the conscious mind can function as a conductor and a composer. Here, the subject apparently believes the water in the tub to feel warm and pleasant, and thereby experiences that way. Is this a composer effect or a conductor effect? Is the composer being influenced to plan to experience the water as warm? Or is the conductor being influenced to direct the musicians to keep on playing? That everything sounds good from his or her ear. I would think that the zombie agents would kick into behavior to escape the ice-cold water. A veto would have to come down from the qualitative evaluator, the point of view which is having an experience that pleases it. The qualitative evaluator hypothesis suggests that our job as conscious minds is to constantly react when liking and disliking, like an audience that hones the skills of a comedian on stage by either laughing or failing to laugh or whatever the response the performer is looking for. Over time, the comedian's act becomes honed, his timing and cadence perfected to achieve maximum effect. Thus, I am Jesse's audience, but my role is not a passive one. I am not the audience at home watching the show on TV. I am the audience which reacts to it in the room and improves Jesse's performance. I provide instant and ongoing feedback as Jesse's multitude of unconscious processes unfold. And beyond that, I serve to work together with Jesse's modes of thinking and decision-making in order to craft and approve long-term plans. I do this, again, by evaluating the thoughts and propositions that emerge from unconsciousness, allowing certain lines of thinking to proceed and objecting like a lawyer to others. By now, Jesse and I have lived together long enough that his thinking is sculpted in favor of my approval. His ideas are often good ones, as far as I'm concerned, and his moments of insight are such as to amuse and compel me. Are they my ideas or his? Is the musician's great solo his own achievement or mine? When Jesse takes a bite of something for the first time, will I like the taste or not? It really isn't up to me. The neural activities which produce the olfactory and gustatory qualia are just passing along their analysis. I either find the result agreeable or I don't. The qualitative evaluator makes its judgment. Chocolate good, cashews bad. The neurons that produce the experience have no opinion at all about the matter. I am thus their food taster. If something is a little off, it is my job to notice. This brain has thus constructed me 
first in early development, but in a continuous way throughout my life. My preferences, my values, my convictions are not quite my own. They are based on sense data that I have accrued, that I have compared and contrasted and collected wisdom from. Without me, the conscious mind, Jesse's zombie orchestra would go unguided, adrift and untutored. But amazingly, those zombies have given me everything I have ever experienced. It wasn't the world outside, the world of trees and rocks, of people and places. It was the zombies. Encoded by generations of evolution, they have auditioned with their best performances, and, have, and I have been their qualitative evaluator. I have stood as judge and de facto editor. And in this way, I have crafted them into the best fitness for my life. Not just fitness to the ancestral environment, but fitness to my environment. This is a lot of responsibility, and despite my not having my ghostly hands upon the levers, I nevertheless seem to be possessed of something not unlike free will. Mm -hmm.